Good morning, everyone. My name is also Daniel. We got a lot of Daniels in this church. If you're trying to meet new people and they're male and you forget their name, just try Daniel. Um, we're going to read Mark chapter 8, a uh, short passage, but I'm going to talk about some of the context too. This is Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 26. So if you have a Bible, turn with me. No slides today, so you got to do it on your own. Um, here we go. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. Uh, this is God's word. Uh, Lord, would you be revealing yourself opening up our eyes to see you clearly, to know the goodness of your grace in the gospel, uh, that we would be changed. I pray, Lord, you would help us look at ourselves, um, help us examine ourselves where we're at, that we would be able to be honest um, wherever we're at, that we wouldn't feel shame or condemnation, but that we would just be able to honestly see um, our eyesight, what our view of you is, and that you would be helping us to see more clearly who you are, your love for us. Um, pray you would help me speak clearly in Jesus' name. Amen. Alrighty. So, uh, show of hands, how many of you have poor vision and need some kind of corrective implement to help yourself see clearly? <laughs> what is that? I just saw Joshua do like a loser, like, oh, so what's your vision, huh? Is it like 2020, 2010? You have real good vision? Okay. Well, congratulations. Oh, that's so encouraging, and Congratulations. That's awesome. Um, I, I don't have great vision. So I think since, uh, I, I think it was probably like at the end of elementary school, I started to need glasses. And it started off not that bad, but progressively my vision has gotten worse and worse and worse. And so I've made many visits to the eye doctor. How many people, uh, okay, and I'm actually curious, like I went to the eye doctor a long time ago. And so right now I, I always wear contact lenses now, except at night after I brush my teeth, take out my contacts, put on glasses. Um, I don't know what the optometrist is even like because I haven't gone there in far too long. <laughs> You know, like I have contacts and I can see okay, but sometimes I really think to myself, if I just like mustered up the energy to go see the eye doctor, my vision would vastly improve. Like I can see people's faces clearly. I can read some stuff over there on the wall, some of the letters, but my vision is, I know my vision is not as good as it could be if I went to the eye doctor. Now, for those of you who have been to the eye doctor, let me, let me ask you, is this kind of what your experience is like? So I went, like, way back in my day, when we went to the eye doctor, 
they just like, I don't know, like whacked you in the head and like, now you see better. I don't know. Anyway, when I went to the eye doctor, there were a couple of things they did to diagnose your vision. One of them was the puff of air test. Does anyone know about the puff of air test? So uh, what they did for me is they put my, like I put my head up against this machine and then off in the distance there is this picture of like a hot air balloon, like a colorful hot air balloon and it was kind of blurry and so I have to stare and I like look deeply and I keep my eyes really wide open and then the moment you least expect it, the thing, sh like, the, the thing sort of like clears up um, the hot air balloon becomes in focus, and then it shoots a puff of air into your eyes. And the whole time you're waiting for that puff of air, after you've gone the first time, you're like, your eyes are watering, you're like, ah, when's it gonna come, when's it gonna come? It really freaks you out. That's one of the things I remember about the eye doctor. Do, do, have you guys who have glasses, do they still do that? Is it still a hot air balloon? A, a barn? Uh, okay, okay, so there's a different picture now. So that's good to know. The other thing that I remember is uh, at some point after they've done some eye tests to make sure your eyes aren't all messed up, they have that like big like lens tester thing. So it's like this big thing. Okay, so there's a thing on the there's a, a thing on the back wall called I, I looked this up for the sermon. I too can read Wikipedia. Um, I do my research. Okay, uh, there's a thing called the Snellen test. Did you know that those letters on the wall? That thing is called the Snellen test. S-N-E-L-L-E-N, -L -L -E the Snellen test. So at the top, there's like a really big letter, and then each progressive row gets smaller and smaller, and the idea is basically, you know what it is, like how good is your vision? And so Joshua, you can see the very bottom line, you're so cool. Without any glasses, you're so cool. Um, so in, for the Snellen test, my glasses, my, when I would take off my glasses or my contacts, I would like see like nothing, like maybe I could see the O on the top line. And so they stick my eyes in front of this like lens tester thing and the optometrist will like flick a button and like then one of the lens will change uh, the prescription and then he will say like, is this one better? And then he flicks it or is this one better, right? Number one, flick, different lens, number two. And depending on how good the lens is for my vision, it'll become clearer or foggier, right? Now, what's really interesting about this passage is this passage is talking about a different kind of eyesight. And what Jesus is doing, what the gospel writer is doing in the book of Mark, is he's actually showing us different people who all have different spiritual eyesights. We all have these different spiritual eyesight conditions and then in this section, Jesus is like the eye doctor, okay? And so we're going to look through the different conditions. There are different people who come to Jesus, and they come to him, and they interact with him in some way. And through his conversation, through the questions he asks him, he's actually diagnosing how clearly they can see things spiritually, okay? Now, there are a lot of principles that we want to get out of this. But before we get into the passage that I just read, I want to give you a few examples of different eyesight conditions that you can have. Why does, what's up, Peter? Um, why does this matter? <laughs> Everyone watch Peter as he's sitting down. <laughs> yeah, so uh, let me give you some spiritual conditions. Now, 
What I think is so important about this is this is kind of like going to the spiritual eye doctor. When you read through this passage, there are different people who have different types of eyesight. So there are some people who are just straight up blind. There are some people who are in an even more interesting position. They're blind, but they're convinced that they can see. And then there are disciples who are, can see in some ways, but in some ways they still have no clue what's going on. And then there's this blind man who is initially blind, but then goes through this progression. And it's a very, very interesting, confusing progression. This is a very weird miracle that Jesus does. And so we're going to look at these different conditions. We're going to see, I, I want you to place yourself and say, which one of these characters and their eyesight do you resonate more with? And then we're going to look at how Jesus heals these conditions, okay? Um, so this is so incredibly important. Um, I feel so passionately about this topic. Um, this is basically like, this is almost like why I became a pastor. This is like what I care so much about. I care a lot about uh, people who go to church, but they are still blind. That includes youth. It includes parents. Um, people, when I talk to them, they have such a different understanding about what Christianity is about than I feel like I do that I'm like, you don't get it. I feel like there's something you're missing. But then at the same time, this is also for me because when I think about Jesus, when we go through the Christmas season, when we sing songs, um, I, I think to myself, is my, am I engaged? Am I seeing God clearly? Do I have his perspective? So we're gonna look at the conditions. We're gonna look at how we can experience healing, okay? First condition, uh, look at chapter eight, verse 11 through 12. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. So this is the first spiritual condition, um, the first spiritual eyesight that I think many people have. What is going on here? The Pharisees come to Jesus, and they are not coming for the purpose of investigating. They already know exactly what he's about. They exactly have an impression in their mind about who he is. And what's really interesting is he gets frustrated with this. He says, he sighs deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. When you come to any sort of spiritual truth, when you come to scripture, when you try to come to God, you have to acknowledge your own preconceptions and bias when it comes to God, okay? When it comes to the existence of God, when it comes to the love of God, when it comes to spiritual realities, uh, it's very possible that you can be like the Pharisees. So what's their condition? They came to do what? To argue. You know what I mean? They are adversarial in the way they come up to him. And so this is like, let's pretend that I am of one political party and Roger is the other one. And I'm not trying to listen to what he says. I'm not trying to understand why he holds the positions he holds. I come up to him. I know I'm right. And I'm going to argue into the ground to prove that you're wrong. And there is literally nothing that he can say or do to convince me that 
I'm, I'm wrong because I already know that I'm right. And so whenever he presents arguments that might poke little holes in my preconceptions, what do I do? I slam those holes shut. I stop listening to him. I pretend like he's not saying anything valid. I, am, I misinterpret him. I, think, I, I say that his argument is really dumb or I attack his character. This is what political discussions are like. When someone says something that makes you question the validity of your side, you just attack their character. This is what politicians do all the time, right? Um, but you're not dealing with the evidence. You're not dealing with the argument. You are so convinced in your mind what's true before you go in that you are not open to changing your mind. You're not open to reconsidering that your perception might be different than reality. Do you know what I mean? And so the Pharisees, they came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven. Why do they want a sign from heaven? To test him. This is really, really interesting. So uh, when Jesus, so what do they want? They want some kind of miracle so that Jesus can demonstrate who he is. But what's really interesting is in all of the Gospels, Jesus does tons and tons of different miracles. And the Pharisees are like investigating him. They talk, they investigate the witnesses. They talk to this blind man who Jesus healed. They talk to the people who, who he cast demons out of. And Jesus cannot win. He literally cannot win. When Jesus does a miraculous sign in one of the other gospels, the Pharisees say he casts out demons by Beelzebub. So if he does a miracle, they'll say he is doing a miracle by the power of demons, right? And so even if he does a miracle, they find a way to discredit what he's doing and say that he's doing something wrong. If he doesn't do a miracle, then they can say, ha, I knew it. You don't have any power, right? You're so weak. You know, you're not the son of God, whatever. So no matter what he does, he can't win. And so this is really interesting. Um, there's a philosopher named David Hume uh, who wrote a lot about miracles and the existence of miracles, okay? So basically, uh, what tends to happen when it comes to the existence of miracles is we are like, we are like a crime scene investigator who already knows what happens when they come to the crime scene, and rather than investigating the evidence, we say, I know who the culprit is. Um, when it comes to a miracle, uh, there are certain people like atheists who we talk to who say basically, uh, there is literally nothing in the world that could convince me that a miracle actually happened. You get that? There's nothing in the world that could convince me that a miracle actually happened. And so what they're doing is they're saying, I am already convinced in my mind that this is impossible. Therefore, if I see something, I can find all kinds of different ways to justify that it's not a miracle. You get what I'm saying? And so they are convinced in their mind that it's totally impossible that there are miracles. On a Christian side, you could say to yourself, it is, that, that makes sense within an atheistic worldview where there is no God, the material universe is all that there is. That makes perfect sense. There's only material, there's only matter, so therefore there's no such thing as a being or a force that comes from outside of the material world into the world to change something according to the way the laws are functioning. If we see something weird, we simply don't understand it yet, right? But within a Christian worldview, it's very possible to say, um, God, if there is a being who created the material world, 
it would make perfect sense that he can interrupt the natural laws of physics and everything it might be and change something within the natural world. It's perfectly reasonable to say that. It's very internally consistent with my preconceptions about the world, right? Um, now, you, uh, what, I hope you're, what I hope you can see is our presuppositions about the world cause us to have bias towards the evidence and the things that we encounter. As a Christian, with a Christian worldview, I see the world in this way. If you believe in a material world, I see the world in this way. And so what's really interesting is we have to examine our preconceptions, both Christian and non-Christian, and we have to come to this investigation where we're saying, does what I say actually make sense? And is it coherent? Where, okay, if you believe in a material world, only the material world, then is there morality, for example? This is an argument that many philosophers have taken, talked about. Um, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign to, from heaven to test him. Um, and so uh, let, me, let me try to make this more practical. Why do some people not want to believe in Jesus? I, okay, I know I opened up like tons of cans of worms there that I'm not going to address. We can talk about it more later. But let me just give you some examples of people who I've encountered um, who have these kind of hang-ups when it comes to the existence of God and seeing Jesus. Um, number one, super common one, I will never believe in Jesus because my parents believe in Jesus. <laughs> and for some of you, that makes sense. Because when you see your parents' life, you think, oh my gosh, they're such hypocrites. Or why don't they treat me well? Or like, they're, they're unfair to me. So that's, that, that is a perfectly acceptable response to what you see as religious hypocrisy. So people who are hurt by churches are some of the most difficult people to help because they're so wounded. And in their experience, the hurts that they've experienced are such a powerful reason for them not to believe in God. The problem with that is that that is not a good reason to disbelieve in God because you're not addressing any of the arguments, right? You're simply reacting emotionally and you're reacting against someone and so you're not actually really making a choice or investigating the evidence. Do you get what I'm saying? So if you only believed in God because your parents believed in God, you would not be investigating the evidence. You would not try and be trying to see who Jesus is for yourself. If you disbelieved in God because of what your parents did, you'd be doing the exact same thing. And so what I believe and what people have remarked is that there is no such thing as someone who is born a Christian. All Christians are converts. What that means is it doesn't matter what family you're, you're born in. It doesn't matter if you're born into a pastor's family. It doesn't matter if you have like five generations of missionaries. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. It doesn't matter if you're like the, okay, is this, if you're the, Nephew, oh, okay, nephew of the Pope. I'm, I'm trying to think, like, yeah, there's, there's problems there because popes don't have kids. But anyway, um, it doesn't matter. So if you're related to Pope, it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean, doesn't mean you're a Christian. To be a Christian means you have encountered God personally. You have encountered the evidence, uh, but also you have a sense of personal dealing with God, and that is apart from what your parents believe. It's apart from what your friends believe. It's apart from what other people say about him. There has to be the sense of personal dealing. So the first condition, 
if you are in, if you refuse to acknowledge that Jesus is real um, because your parents believe, uh, you are biased. You are blind. Um, the other thing I was thinking about was this. So uh, this would be like you go to the eye doctor to test the eye doctor, right? So you are not going for the purpose of fixing your vision. You're going to see how good of an eye doctor they are. You're doing like an eye doctor audit, right? And so every single test that they do is like a trap for them. There is nothing they can do right. It's like, it's like you have a vendetta against this eye doctor because they uh, stole your girlfriend in college. So then you're like, revenge is a dish best served cold. I'm going to devote my entire life. This is almost like a Korean drama or something. Um, you do, I'm going to devote my entire life to ruining this person who became an optometrist's practice and business and life. And so you think to yourself, ha I'm going to like catch them. You know, if they do this test wrong or if they do that stupid puff of air thing, I'll say like, oh, I'm blind, you know, oh my gosh. And then you like, I don't know, uh, this, is, this is all over the place. I'm, I, you like stab yourself in the eye and you're like, oh my gosh, your machine did that to me. You have to, I'm going to sue you or fire you or whatever. Like, th this, th but this is what we do <laughs> when we come. Our whole perspective and bias, like I am convinced, I'm going to sit here in church. I'm convinced God's not real. God's not real. God's not real. God's not real. If, if God does something to like talk to me, nope, nope, that's just my imagination. Uh, this is what it means to be blind. And then it's also saying, I don't want to see. <laughs> I don't want to see. And so if you're in this camp, all I would suggest to you is please do the work of trying to understand Christianity on your own and take into account your biases, okay? Now, you might be saying to, to me, if you're anything like, my brain is really weird, it's very cynical, so you might be thinking to yourself, okay, Daniel, you're telling me to take into account my biases, but you're the most biased person in the whole room. You get paid to do this, right? So then why should I listen to you? You have the most incentive to believe that God is real and to convince other people that God is real. What I would say to that is go listen to the baptism testimonies. Not, not too long ago, not last week, but two weeks ago, we had a baptism where four people on Chinese side got baptized. These are not paid pastors. They don't have any incentive to believe in God and to report that they've had some sort of personal dealings with God, and yet they do, and they did. And so go to people in our group who are not me. I mean, I, I feel like I can talk to you, but if you, don't trust, if you don't trust religious figures, go to someone whose life you respect, right? Go to someone whose life you respect. You say, this person is a good person. They live a good, admirable life. And then ask them, why do you do this? Why do you live this way? What difference has God made to you in your life? Okay? That's a really important way to go. Let me, okay, let me give you another example so um, there is an author named Aldous Huxley who wrote a book called The Brave New World. Some of you have, are required to read that in high school English. Um, but when he wrote memoirs, he said something really, really painfully honest, which I kind of admire. He said, basically, the reason in university I didn't want to be, be a Christian and I did not want God to exist is because if God existed, it meant that I couldn't sleep with who I want. He literally said that. As a philosopher and as an author, world-renowned, extremely smart, he was able to say, I am very personally biased against the existence of God 
And what is he saying there? He's saying, because I want to live the way I want. You get me? And so for some of you, when I talk to you, there is the intellectual questions about the existence of God. There are the the apologetic questions about the goodness of God in a world where there's suffering and pain and difficulty. But there's also the personal bias where you know if God exists, that actually has implications for how you live and you you don't wanna listen. And therefore, no matter what argument I give you about the reasonableness of the existence of God, you won't even want to engage with the argument because you already are convinced that you don't want to believe. And so if you're in that position, what I would suggest to you is when we look at how this blind man responds, you can actually learn something about how to get forward through that position, okay? So that's the first condition. Second condition. Now the disciples had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. So the disciples are, uh, to put it politely, bumbling fools often (laughs) when it comes to... They're hilarious. They're so funny. Um, Basically, in Mark chapter 6 and in Mark chapter 8, Jesus did two separate miracles where he fed a large group of people. They were witnesses to this, and they actually distributed the bread that he multiplied to this crowd of people. This had just happened, okay? This had just happened. And then they're in the boat, and they're like, oh, shoot, we forgot to pack lunch. We only have one loaf of bread. And then they start panicking. They're like, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And the whole time, Jesus is just sitting there, and he's like, are you serious? Didn't you just see me do these miracles and you're freaking out about bread? And then he says this. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? So these disciples, they see Jesus. They know Jesus. They follow Jesus. They see Jesus do miracles. And then something happens. A small little crisis arises And all of that truth about Jesus flies out of their head, and all of a sudden they experience all of this pressure to solve the problems in their lives by themselves, and they feel overwhelmed and helpless because they can't do it. He keeps on going. Are your hearts hardened? And then I love this. Having eyes, do you not see? He's saying these disciples have spiritual eyes to see some truths about Jesus, but you're not using your eyes, right? So this one really hit me this week because um, as I get older and as I like take on more responsibility for life and like, you know, like church stuff and family stuff, different things, um, often I find myself feeling overwhelmed and worried about the future. And this week, for whatever reason, you know, Toby Toby and I were sick last week, um, like Tuesday, Wednesday. Uh, There's a lot of stuff going on in our family. Um, Ashley uh, had like a bunch of migraines. There's a lot of busy stuff going on. Uh, And I felt very overwhelmed. And I'm like, how are you going to like do stuff in in our church? How are you going to do stuff in the world, God? The world feels hopeless and dark. Where are you? And then I read this passage. And do you know what Jesus was saying to me? He was saying uh, in in this passage... Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And then he said this, do you not remember? Do you you not remember all the times that I, Daniel, 
have experienced God's miraculous provision for me in a wide variety of circumstances. So when I was depressed in high school, God came through for me. When I was struggling in college with relationships and I was like testing God, I was like, God, you better reveal yourself to me or I'm going to become an atheist. And I prayed that to him. And then I took actions to try to let him respond to me. And he showed up for me. He was helping my doubt by walking, me, walking with me and helping me experience truth and learn more through my doubt. When I think about all the ways that he's showed up for us in the pandemic, the pandemic was a nightmare. And over and over again, I was so discouraged. And I was like, how is anything going to work? What are you doing, God? Like, how, how can we hold things together? There's people who are so lonely and hurting. And we can't, like, interact with them. We can't help them. And God came through in a miraculous ways, where it's like some of you youth got baptized coming out of that. A bunch of people got baptized on the Chinese side. God is doing amazing things. Don't you remember all the stuff I've done for you so many different times? My spiritual eyesight was blurry. It was like I was walking around without wearing my contact lenses. I was completely unaware. I wasn't using my eyes. I wasn't using the eyes of faith in remembering what, has God, what God has done in my life. I'm just like the disciples, and we're just like the disciples. This is the second spiritual condition. We might know God, but we are not using what we know about God in this new circumstance. So here's another principle that I would say is true. Um, as Christians, whenever we go through some kind of life transition, we must remember what God has shown us in the past in this new environment and new circumstances. And this will be a rocky road, okay? Do you guys like ice cream? Anyway, um, this will be a rocky road. Whenever you go through any life transition, there will be difficulty remembering God. So from my own experience, getting married. When I got married, there was a lot of learning to do where I had to reappropriate the truths I knew about God to my marriage, where God loves me even when my wife is mad at me. And I need to learn and grow because I am a sinner and I don't love my wife as I should. But that doesn't devastate and destroy me because I am trusting that he's working in my life and Ashley's life, right? And it took years. It takes a long time to figure out where, like, where is my faith? Where is all of the things that God has done? Why don't I remember it when it comes to this new situation? Same thing was true with having a kid. So for you guys, when you go to college, that is a major turning point, and it is so difficult to remember how God has been faithful to you in the past. And so in the youth group, I'm not trying to make fun of you, I'm just observing what I've seen. Um, there are many of you who go to youth retreat in Mexico, and then you're like, oh my gosh, God is so amazing, God is so real. And then like literally two weeks into the school year, you completely forget everything. That's because we need God's help to remember. We need this clarity in our spiritual eyesight. And that can only come, it can come through a lot of different ways. But when Edwin was talking a few weeks back about the Holy Spirit, this is an incredible truth where it's not even all on you to remember. The Holy Spirit, the reason God gives us the Holy Spirit is the Spirit is our guide. And it says multiple times, the Spirit will bring these things to your remembrance where the Holy Spirit actually helps, remember, helps us remember who we are, helps us reorient our perspective in life, and that's how we can 
put into practice our faith and the character of God and our trust in him in new circumstances that we haven't faced before. Does the first one resonate with you? Does the second spiritual condition resonate with you? At different times in our lives, this probably will resonate with like all of us. So for example, for me, the first one, it definitely resonates with me. Because I would, in some ways, it would be, it would be, it would feel freeing temporarily for me to know that God doesn't exist because then I could just do what I want, you know? I could just do what I want. I don't have to do the stuff that I feel like God is leading me to do when it comes to being other-centered and loving other people. I can center my life around my desires and my pleasures and my preferences, and it feels really safe and cozy and great. But that's a trap. And so there, there is that part of me still where I experience that blindness, um, but there's something else out there. Okay, so the disciples are number two. They fail to remember. Number three, let's look at the blind man. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. So right off the bat, this is something we see about how to get your vision healed. Number one, how do you know whether you have started to perceive spiritual realities? The first one is you are blind, and people are leading you to Jesus. And this happens in community. So when I was listening to the testimonies, one thing that was so clear to me was um, the people who were sharing their testimonies moved from a place of self-sufficiency. It was really cool to listen to them. And this is another reason you can kind of figure out if you're learning about spiritual reality. They moved from a place of self-sufficiency to dependence and uh, basically God-reliance. There is the one lady, um, I don't know her name, but she was giving that Chinese proverb and it was so crazy. Very successful, educated people. And she said, basically, uh, if I trust in a mountain, it'll crumble. If I rely on water, the water will flow away from me. The only person I can trust is myself. That's what she said. That said, that uh, uh, in, uh, what do you call it? crystallized her mindset about life before she ran into God. And so she was all on her own. She was self-reliant. But then she encountered this incredible tragedy in her life, and she found that all of her self-reliance completely fell apart. And when you go through life, sometimes things hit you that you just can't handle. All, all your life, you had this illusion that you are in control of your destiny, and then life smacks you upside the head, and you're like, oh, shoot, I don't have things together. I can't handle this on my own. And then when that happened to her and her husband, there were people in our church who came to them and sat with them in their tragedy and prayed with them and read scripture with them. That's like these people leading this blind man to Jesus. The blind man could not find Jesus even if he wanted to, right? How's he going to find him? He doesn't know what he looks like. How's he going to get there? He's blind. And then look what Jesus does. He took the blind man by the hand. So Jesus, you have a sense when your eyesight is becoming more clear and you're, you're putting on the lens of faith, whatever it might be, you have a sense that Jesus is interacting with you personally. You feel him touching your life in some way. And then what does Jesus do? He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Uh, what's really incredible is you see in movies and articles and stuff 
how some blind people can adapt to their new situation in incredible ways. So, for example, um, they memorize their surroundings of the places that they're most familiar with. So even without a cane, they can just walk through their house. They know exactly where everything is. Um, when Jesus was leading him, he led him out of the village, which was out of the place of comfort and control, Right? The blind man would have been so familiar with his village. He would have known where everything was. He would have known who the people were. He would have known how to navigate the village on his own. But Jesus takes him by the hand and leads him out into the wilderness where he is absolutely helpless. Like imagine you're in a desert, right? You have no clue what direction to go. You can't see anything. You have no way to find your way back home. That's where Jesus leads him. And then, and then, When he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? So this is one of those gross miracles. This is weird, right? Why the heck does Jesus spit on the man's eyes? And I don't know, but I can speculate. One thing that this emphasizes is that Jesus is not a phantom, okay? Jesus is not a spirit, there were some people who believed that Jesus was simply like, like, ooh, a phantom or a vision, and he had no tangible physical body. This is saying Jesus came, like the songs we sing, to this world as a baby. He, had, he was clothed in our fragile flesh, right? And so there is a physical, tangible interaction between Jesus and the man. And, and again, like post-COVID, this like, super gross and scary. It's like, we don't want bodily fluids like this near anyone. But he spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him. And then he asked him, do you see anything? This is such an incredible question for us. He looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Okay, so if you guys are wearing glasses... I would like you to experiment by taking off your glasses right now. And then, like, if you look around, how blurry are people, right? This is a really funny image where he says, when I look at people, they look like trees. They're just like a straight kind of up and down thing. Maybe their arms are like branches, but I I can't see what they look like. I can't see anything further than that. And what's so incredible about this man's response is he is showing us what to do about spiritual blindness and spiritual fuzziness. When our eyes are blurry, if we simply tell Jesus the truth about how we're doing, this is giving him an opportunity for us to experience healing. You get me? And so this is so important. Everything that, like, honestly, um, this is why I talk a lot about doubt This is why I really believe that the way we can truly believe in God is by going through our questions rather than avoiding them. It's because he honestly says that he doesn't see things clearly. And so the most dangerous place to be is if you think you know everything because then you can never learn. And Jesus, when he's talking to the Pharisees, in other places he says, Uh, Those who are well have no need of a doctor, but he has come to call sinners, not the righteous, to repentance. So if you think you're good before God and you know everything, there is nothing you can learn about him. When you come to sermons or Bible or song, you're like, I know it all already. 
you are in a very deadly, dangerous place. But if you're simply able to say, this is why I love the youth group, you guys, more than many adults, ask questions that might not be safe for polite Christian society. You know what I mean? You guys ask the real questions that you are facing, and that is revealing that maybe you, you're, you're like, things are kind of fuzzy to me, Daniel. I don't know about God's love. Things are kind of fuzzy. Why did Jesus have to die? Or like, what does Jesus say about sexuality? What does Jesus say about justice? These are great, great questions that are exactly what this guy is doing. He doesn't hide. He doesn't pretend. He doesn't say, oh, yeah, I see great. Now, his vision had vastly improved before Jesus spat on his eyes, right? Before he could see nothing, everything was darkness. But now he's in this weird kind of limbo state where he can see some things, but he can't see everything. So all you have to do if you're in that position is you tell Jesus the truth. You don't lie to him. You say, I'm struggling with doubt. I don't know if God is real. And you tell him. He looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. This is the picture of spiritual growth. Our spiritual vision, even if you're a Christian already, is not all perfect and clear the moment you become a Christian. And the disciples are an excellent, excellent example of this. Even in the passage right after this, the, um, when Peter is, Peter says, uh, anyway, I'll get to that later. I'll get to that later. So I want you to ask yourself this question. How do you know what your spiritual eyesight is? Um, one way that I would ask, one way you can identify this is if you don't have clarity about truth, okay? You don't have clarity about Christian truth or doctrine. Um, another way you can know this is true, that your spiritual vision is blurry, and this is a really big one, if your heart and emotions are not engaged. Like plenty of people can sit in church and just nothing does anything for them. And you spend a long time, I'm talking about myself too, it's very possible for me to just like be a blob and I show up and then I leave and there is nothing, nothing about God or truth that penetrates. My heart is not engaged in anything. I just kind of resign myself to do it. This is kind of like a boring religious tax I have to pay every week, but I can't wait for when the speaker shuts up and I can go do my own thing. That's what it can be like. If that's the case, we need, we need spiritual healing. We need to go to the eye doctor. What are other ways we can know that we lack spiritual sight? This last one. Jesus went on with his disciples, this is uh, verse 27 on, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And then he asked him, but who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? One reason that our hearts are not engaged is because we are constantly thinking about what other people say Jesus is, but we have never heard him ask us this question. Who do you say I am? I don't care what your parents think. I don't care what your peers think. I don't care what your kids think. I don't care what anyone thinks. Jesus is asking you, who do you think I am? Is Jesus just a good moral teacher? 
If Jesus is only a good moral teacher, all you need to do is learn the rules and then do them. But that's not what Christianity is about. If Jesus is a prophet, if he's John the Baptist, if he's Elijah, Jesus is not a savior. He's a teacher. And so you just learn the stuff and then you do it. But if Jesus is the Christ, which means the king, and if Jesus must suffer and die, there's something else going on here where Jesus is not simply someone who tells me what to do. Jesus doesn't give me good advice. He's good news for me. There's a big difference between thinking church and Christianity is about getting good advice to live a good life and saying, I am blind without Jesus. I need saving. I need healing. I need transforming. And so once you can begin to say to Jesus, I'm not sure who you are to me. Can you reveal yourself to me? That is where spiritual growth will happen and transformation will happen. But in order to do that, you have to admit that you can't see. So let me use another dumb example from the eye doctor. Let's pretend that I'm doing the like uh, switch flippy thing, right? Where he's uh, trying to uh, refine the best lens to help me see. And let's say for a second that I'm just really embarrassed that I can't see well. I'm so embarrassed. So the very first one he tries, it's super duper blurry for me, but then I don't want to admit that I can't see well, so I'm like, that one, that one's perfect. You don't even need to try any other ones. I see perfectly clear. And then to be even more ridiculous, then he's like, okay, then what does the fourth row down say? And you're like, oh shoot. But then you're like, no, not oh shoot. I prepared for this. I distracted him, and then I went up close to the Snelling diagram, and I memorized all the lines so that I could fake it. I can just memorize the, the letters. He's, you're like, oh, yeah, uh, are you talking about the second one from the right, the fifth row down? And then you think to yourself, oh, which one? Oh, that was an E. Yeah, it's an E. You, you can't see, but you're acting like you can. You're faking it because you're too embarrassed to say you can't. That's, that's the exact opposite of what I hope our church is about. If you can't see it, and if you admit it, that's the best place to be. That's where you can learn. That's where you can grow. And then the most important thing is you're authentic with Jesus himself. If you can reveal to other people in a group that you don't see things clearly, this is where people can heal. People can pray for you. People can talk to you. They can be involved in your questions, and they can say to you, like, like what I would say to you, like, I'm not sure what I think about that. I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. But maybe Roger has some perspective on this because he went through something similar. Why don't you talk to him? Let him know about the questions or the blurriness you're experiencing in your life. But if you don't admit you're not blind, if you don't admit your vision is blurry, you can never change. And so the, other, the final thing I would say is spiritual eyesight and Christianity all has to do with the person of Jesus. The person of Jesus. It's not what other people say who he is. Have you encountered Jesus personally where he becomes to you not just a teacher but a savior? Jesus does for you what you can't do yourself. Um, the author of one of the songs, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, Charles Wesley, him and his brother John Wesley were part of this famous revival in England in the first half of the 17th century. And there's this really interesting thing. I want to illustrate to you the difference between religion and understanding Jesus personally. 
Uh, these guys went to Oxford University. So they were extremely intelligent, and they were part of basically a Christian club where they were so serious about doing all the religious stuff, praying, reading the Bible, that people called them the Methodists. And it was basically making fun of them. You guys are so rigid. You guys are so annoying. You wake up at four every morning to do prayer meetings. You guys are so methodical in the way that you practice Christianity. And then in 1738, um, they were reading a commentary on the book of Galatians. And then after, this was years, years of practicing religiosity very scrupulously. They read the, the preface to the commentary to the book of Galatians by Martin Luther and then they realized that they never, ever had been Christian at all. All of their religious activity, they had never encountered Jesus face to face, and they had never understood the gospel. And so when they read this, all of a sudden they realized, I am not saved by my religious performance. I am accepted by God on the basis of what Jesus did and my belief in what he did. And then their hearts warmed their whole attitude melted and changed. And so if you can, if they were so religious, they were the best church kids ever, but they never met Jesus, who do we think we are to not say it's very possible, I can attend church all the time and still not have met Jesus? Is your heart engaged? Do you see Jesus as a person who is beautiful? Do you love him? So for me, uh, one example of this uh, from the failure to remember the truth of Jesus. Um, when I first started preaching, it was like the fifth sermon I ever preached. And I remember this. I was freaking out. I was super duper anxious. And then as I was preparing and reading, I was praying to God, like, help me stop freaking out. Help me stop panicking. Help me to trust you. And then I experienced God, like, basically, I, I like, had this image of myself, like, up preaching and then I experienced and imagined God standing next to me and holding my hand. And, he, and I felt his comfort and presence with me, and that so encouraged me to just keep on doing it, you know? And so I remember that quite often because I still freak out about sermons. But this is who Jesus is to me. He's there with me in everything. And I experience a real comfort and presence to him. And I didn't do much to earn that. Like, it's not because I'm so good. It's because for some strange reason, <laughs> the kid's yelling. <laughs> for some strange reason, he encountered me. Like, he came to me. People brought me to him. And that's joy. This is where when we sing Christmas songs, when we reflect on this, we can remember Jesus coming to this world. And we can say, I am so glad that my Savior came so that I could know him and have joy. If things are blurry, if you don't know anything about the joy of being a Christian, then go to Jesus and ask him to clarify your vision. Ask him to reveal himself to you. And then look, this is totally out of my control, honestly. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm banking on the fact that Jesus will respond to you personally. It could be through me, it could be through other people, it could be like your own subjective experience with him, but it's not about doing religious stuff. It's about encountering him face to face and seeing how beautiful he is. Do you know your eyesight? If I was to ask you again the same question, 
What is your spiritual eyesight? Would you be able to say honestly, there are ways in which I still see things like hazy, they're blurry. That's a great place to be if you can acknowledge that. Turn to him, pray to him for help. He will change you. Let's pray. Lord, um, you know what? I'm not going to pray. You guys pray. Uh, if there is anything resonating with you, uh, if you feel like you're in any of those groups, you're a... Uh, um, you're a Pharisee who has kind of baggage with God that makes you not want to believe. Um, just use this time and space, and you could do whatever you want. You could talk to him. You could ask him if you want, or you could just say, no, I don't want anything to do with this. Um, if you know that your vision is like the man before Jesus touched him the second time, that things about God are blurry and confusing, um, will you spend this time to talk to him and say, Jesus, can you touch my eyes again? Can you bring me healing and clarity? Um, if your life is difficult and dark and you lack purpose and meaning and a sense of God's leading um, and you're in that kind of blurry, fuzzy camp, uh, can you ask him to bring clarity to your life? And then I would also encourage you, um, if you have been responding in this way, go talk to someone after the service or go talk to someone this coming week and kind of share your questions Share the blurriness with someone in your life that you trust. And then finally, um, if you feel like you see clearly, I would encourage you to be like the blind man's friends and reach out to someone and encourage them to behold Jesus. So this could be encouraging someone to come to our, um, our Christmas Eve service or whatever it might be, or reading the Bible with you, um, or just having a spiritual conversation. So I'll give you 30 seconds to respond in whatever way God is leading, and then I'll close. Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, we are blind apart from you opening our eyes. Uh, our vision is so blurry and confused and distorted when we put on other lens. Uh, and so I pray, Lord, that you would touch our eyes, restore our sight, heal us, help us see you clearly, that we would know who you are, your incredible love and grace for us that you demonstrated on the cross. I pray you would give us increasing clarity as we journey with you, Lord. Um, I pray that in this coming week, in this coming year, we would look back and say, I once was blind, but now I see. I can see you so much more clearly than I did five years ago. Um, so I pray you would be doing that in our lives so we can experience your grace for us and know your love and see you as you are, and that we wouldn't answer this for anyone else but just for ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.